Well, here we are. I'm excited to share this morning. First of all, because it's always great to come and share from God's Word. God's Word is exciting as it is. But also because uh, this morning we have joining with us both, for one, our core group for our new church plant. Our new church plant is called Salt and Light. If you did not know, I'm kind of the church planting resident here at Nova Community Church. And this is our new church plant. It's called Salt and Light Church. And uh, this core group are believers who have labored and prayed with us over the course of almost two years together. And joining with our core group here this morning, we also have a whole team of I think, is it 12 or 13 or 14 people who have flown out all the way from Indianapolis, Indiana, here to California to help us out with our first introductory services. Together, we've been handing out flyers, representing Salt and Light at the farmer's market. We went to the mall and just met strangers and talked to them about this new church. Um, All of these wonderful efforts. So if you meet someone who looks either like they're a little bit new or they're from the Midwest. I don't, I don't know what that means. Um, give them a warm welcome out in plaza time or as we greet each other as we end our service. That being said, one of the great topics that we are constantly talking about with our team from the Midwest was always the weather. Oh my goodness, the fact that, oh sure, it rained earlier this week, but this is not Christmas weather. I should be having a short sleeve shirt on. It's almost 80 degrees probably today. The biggest thing that signals Christmassiness for us here is probably Coast playing their Christmas music on the radio all of the time. Uh, traffic picking up on Hawthorne and Del, uh, for Delamo Mall. Our home, we mark Christmas uh, because I do the, oh, got to turn that on. Yeah, we mark it with this. Yeah, I put up the Christmas lights the day after Thanksgiving. They're a little bit animated. You can't see it from here. Um, But I do that. I put up the Christmas lights. And for those of you who are tasked with this annual job of doing this, you know how difficult it is. You got to schlep everything out of the garage, get up on the ladder. For me, though, the most difficult thing about putting up the Christmas lights well, at my age, it's remembering how to do it every year. What plug goes where? How many strings of which go in what place on on the eaves? How to manage the power cables? How to get that thing to work to get it to turn on at sundown? And so my solution has been for the last few years is I go to my phone and I watch the video that I made of myself for myself putting up the Christmas lights every single year. I reteach myself every single year how to put the Christmas lights up. And this is how technology helps us. The the greatest use of the internet is simply finding out how to do useful stuff. We all do it. Had to change the headlights on my minivan, so I went to YouTube. Had to make a clock that ran on the power of a potato for my son's fourth grade project. It was his project, but we went to YouTube. Had to fold up a friend's pack and play because I have not had an infant for 10 years. So I, they had the instructions on YouTube. <laughs> My sister asked me to carve the turkey. Made sure I did it right by watching Gordon Ramsay carve a turkey. <laughs> Again, on YouTube. Any number of things. If you want to make yourself useful, you can learn it 
someone will teach you on YouTube. Becoming a people with greater access to more and more skills, becoming more and more useful with ourselves. As, as mundane as this might, found, might sound, we like being useful because it's a fundamental theme of who we are. We're always searching about how to be able to do good, significant work with our lives, being able to lead lives that are useful. We don't want our lives to be, to be wasted or useless without impact or without purpose. This is why in the midst of all of these activity that we fill our lives with and rushing here and there with school or work or whatever you might have, uh, we find our days overwhelmed by this book was so incredibly popular, The Purpose-Filled Life, because as rich or as active or seemingly successful that we might think we might be, we're just rats running on a treadmill without purpose without our lives having a significant use to them. And this is especially important during the Christmas season because we are busy, busy, busy during this season, particularly occupied with cards and presents and shopping and guests and travel. How are we to be made useful or made purposeful by God, accomplishing what is significant and impactful, not wasting our lives and our time on, on useless pursuits? So as we reapproach our Christmas series uh, that we've been going through called Visitations, where we look at how God used significant interactions during the birth of Christ to teach us truths about the meaning of Christmas, Luke is going to relate to us exactly who are those people who God uses and makes purposeful through this account of the visit of the angel Gabriel with Mary. So, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to return to our Advent narrative again this morning. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. And you can tell now, you're saying to yourself, oh my goodness, that's 30 verses. We're going to take it in little chunks, a little bit at a time. So, we're going to start here in verse 26, and Luke recounts this. He says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said uh, to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Okay, we're going to stop there. We're going to walk through this first part of the text. We'll title this first part of the text, The Amazing Announcement. The Amazing Announcement, because it's an, it's an announcement, it's, it's rather amazing. Uh, and if you were here last week, this amazing announcement comes right on the heels of another amazing announcement from 
from the text right before it. If we recount our context from last week's sermon uh, that Pastor Adam was here giving, in that passage right before, the angel Gabriel was just telling Mary's relative, the priest Zacharias, that he and his wife were going to have a miracle baby as well. This man of high position, of, of great prestige, even though he was advanced in age and his wife was supposedly barren, Zacharias and Elizabeth were going to have a baby, and they were going to name their baby John. Of course, we know that that turns out to be John the Baptist. And now, six months later, Gabriel, the angel, uh, flies or teleports or saunters over to Mary. I don't know how it works there, but he makes this announcement. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And immediately, we should see that this announcement to Mary is tremendously parallel to the announcement that Gabriel has made to Zacharias. And we are meant to hold these two announcements up side by side. We can't help but do it since one is on the heels of the other. First, we're to contrast the place of the announcement, where the announcement has been made. That Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, he gets his announcement in Jerusalem, in the temple, with a huge crowd of people waiting for him outside as their representative before God. Mary, on the other hand, not nearly as auspicious of an occasion. Uh, Luke actually has to describe where Mary gets her announcement. He says, oh, it's a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Since Nazareth was such a backwater, nobody knew where it was, he has to describe where it was. So immediately we see this contrast between lowly Mary and her announcement and her visitation and the visitation of Zacharias in the temple. Next, we're to see the contrast in the people being given the announcement. Zacharias is this respected high priest. He's experiencing the very most important high point in his whole life the life of his nation even. He could, we could say he's the most important person in his whole country at this point in time when he's in the temple with the angel Gabriel. But Mary, Mary's the polar opposite. As a woman in the society, uh, I don't even know if we could describe her as a second-class citizen. She's kind of not even a citizen. On top of this, Mary's a young woman, where youth was not a prized kind of thing in that day. And she was an unmarried young woman, which would tank her worth in this society even more. A wider gap between two people in terms of social status could not be had more, Zacharias and Mary. So uh, here, though, both Mary and Zacharias, they, they both need some degree of calming in the presence of, of the angel. That's similar. Gabriel calms both their fear by saying, do not be afraid, both to Mary and to Zacharias. And the announcements are similar to both of them. Both of them will have some sort of miracle children who were prophesied in the great plan of God. But Zacharias, his child, John, is going to be the herald for Jesus. Jesus is going to be the one. He's going to be the son of the Most High, given the throne of David. He's going to be the Messiah who rules over the house of Jacob forever with an everlasting kingdom. And as Pastor Adam spoke at length last week about Zacharias and his response to Gabriel's message, this is our third point of contrast. If you remember, Gabriel says to Zacharias this, your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And Zacharias responds in verse 18 of chapter 1, how will I know this for certain? How will I know this for certain? Zacharias responds 
with doubt. Doubt. It's a reply that the Scriptures point as a negative reply, as a response lacking in faith, because Gabriel has some kind of choice words for Zacharias. Gabriel curses Zacharias in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall stay silent. Why? Because you did not believe my words. And Zacharias, he's rendered mute for months, prevented from praising God for this great blessing that he's receiving. Now, contrast this to Mary's response. Gabriel ends his prophecy to Mary. Jesus will be the son of the Most High, the throne of David, reign over Jacob forever. And Mary's response is, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And we might think, uh-oh, she's going to get cursed too. This is, is she doubting here? But Gabriel doesn't give a negative reaction to Mary at all. Now, if we think about it, if you think about Zacharias, high priest, had precedent, he knew that God had the power to provide children to a couple who might be advanced in years. God had done this with the patriarch of the faith, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah. But Zacharias, knowing God's capability, doubts by saying, how do I know? Give, give me a little bit more evidence. But for Mary, Mary's an unwed, unwed teenager, not married, not pregnant. The angel says, you're going to have a child. And Mary's response is not, are you sure? <coughs> Her response is, well, how? She's a, a virgin. There have been, up to this point in history, been zero virgin births. So Mary's kind of asking, well, is this somewhere in my future? Is this after I married Joseph and we conceive a child? But if this isn't in the future, how does this occur such that Mary does not break her vows of chastity during her engagement to Joseph? Mary's question is a question of clarification, not a question of uncertainty. It's not a question of doubt. And that's contrast between Zacharias' answer and Mary's answer to the angel. And so the angel gives Mary this clarification that this child was not going to be conceived conventionally. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. The power of the Most High will overshadow her. And so to wrap up, finally, the angel assures Mary that this is something that can be done. This, is, this can happen, that God is on the move in terms of providing kind of supernatural births during this time, that since Mary, he's, she's going to go now and visit Elizabeth, Zacharias' wife, and see with her own eyes that her, her advanced in years relative is going to be large with child. She's going to know that nothing is impossible with God. And Mary's response, Mary's response, great response that shows her great faith. She says, Behold the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Simply, Mary says, let it be. She says, use me. Let God's will be done in me. So that's the amazing announcement. That's the first snapshot of the visitation of Gabriel to Mary that shows Mary as responsive and used by God, whereas Zacharias, he responds in doubt and he is silenced. Next is the, um, we'll call it the corroborating confirmation. The corroborating confirmation. Turn back with me to verse 39 as we continue reading. Luke continues, he says, Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city of, a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the, ba the baby leaped in her womb, 
And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Okay, this is our second snapshot. This is very easy. Mary, right then and there, probably as a response to Gabriel's message, rushes off to Elizabeth's house. And Elizabeth, by now, is in her sixth month of pregnancy. We've been told that. And if you remember, um, Mary enters, well, Elizabeth is there, and and she's large with child, and Mary enters into the house of of Zacharias and Elizabeth, and little fetal John (laughs) doesn't sleep in the womb. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. She has this supernatural experience of speaking forth praise. She gives this great monologue on the blessed nature of all of these circumstances. But most importantly, Elizabeth confirms the nature of Mary's response to Gabriel, that Mary believed where Elizabeth, her husband, did not. Elizabeth says, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. So this initial announcement rather amazing. A miracle without precedent, a virgin who will have a child, and then immediately a corroborating confirmation. Mary gets up, she goes to Elizabeth's house, and both Elizabeth and the baby John confirm that Jesus, he's, he's in the womb there, already, already growing. And then finally, the confident celebration. In response to Elizabeth's praise, Mary lets loose this, well, what's now known as the Magnificat, Mary's psalm of praise to God in response to the conception of Jesus. Verses 46 through 56, she says, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. The Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He's done mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Now, Mary's Magnificat is a fairly typical psalm, quotes generously from the Old Testament. It's a psalm of rejoicing. It opens on that note that Mary's soul exalts the Lord, but she rejoices along two themes in particular which are of note to us. Her first theme is personal, personal. She's rejoicing in her own lowliness, that God has looked down on her station, this teenage girl who in that society, in her status in life, as we have said, was not a person of stature. And Mary affirms that God has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave, that she, she knows her loneliness. And so God's regard for her, his choosing of her to use her for his great purposes is all the more wonderful. That the mighty one has done great things for her a person who is not great at all. And Mary takes this theme of God reaching down to her and her lowly estate and applies that theme to all of Israel. 
That's the second theme, that God helps Israel. And through the Messiah, he's going to continue to help Israel. That God has brought down rulers from their thrones, exalted those who were humble. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. So Mary sees God's work in her as consistent with his grand plan of how God has always worked. He takes the small, he takes the insignificant, he takes the powerless, and he blesses them, and he uses them. And so, that's our passage, continuing continuing on in this series of visitations that surround the birth of Jesus. And Luke is sharing this part of the narrative of Luke's birth, because even this early on in the story of Jesus and life of Jesus, even before he is born, God is developing this theme of who Jesus is coming to, whose lives Jesus is going to redeem, and who God is going to use for his own eternal purposes. And Mary's example through this visitation narrative leads us to a couple of principles and a couple of applications, informing us how do we be used for God's purposes, having an impact that's eternal and has substance to it. The first principle is pretty transparent. It's all over this passage, and that is God uses the humble. God uses the humble. Hard to avoid this theme. It's all over it. You might say that this is one of two driving forces of including the Zacharias and Elizabeth in Luke's account at all. First, to link Jesus as the fulfillment of all the old covenant prophecies, but here, clearly, Zacharias is there as a foil to contrast his visitation with the visitation to Mary, so that we see that humble Mary, because of her humble place and her humble attitude, is used to glorify God. She sings this psalm that is passed down from generation to generation, and she is the beginning of this story of Jesus. Zacharias, on the other hand, has everything. He's got position, he's got prestige, he's got priesthood, the opposite of Mary, and he's rendered silent. It's a theme throughout the Bible. God looks at the heart, and he uses the humble. He cares more about character than capability. So that when he does use us, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. He chooses the small shepherd boy, David, over the towering beast of a guy, Saul. He chooses helpless but loyal Ruth in her distress. He will use ignorant fishermen and not the powerful Pharisees. He uses the humble. Throughout Luke's account, Jesus' life, this is a motif. It's, it's the unclean, it's the sinners, it's the outcasts that God uses, not those who think that they are without sin or that they have strength or they have position so they don't see a need for Jesus to come and save them and help them. First principle of usefulness, stemming from this visitation of Gabriel to Mary. Second follows, just as easy, just as transparent, God uses the submissive. God uses the submissive. He uses those who, because of their humility, then go on to be able to say, in any circumstance, let it be done to me according to your word, God. He uses people simply who are willing to follow whatever he says. And we're familiar with all the reasons why this might have been a very difficult thing for Mary to submit to. Being the mother of Jesus would be very difficult in her context. How people would talk about her pregnancy out of wedlock. How she would be shamed and bring shame to her fiancé, Joseph. How she might, well, it's going to drive a wedge into a relationship with her future husband, Joseph. How the stigma would follow her son the rest of his life. How she would know the truth, and maybe some others might believe her, 
but certainly there would be people, friends, family, her community, who would talk behind her back. Mary understands how her calling will complicate her life. You can hear it in her question to Gabriel. How could this be since I'm a virgin? But even yet knowing these difficulties, she says, yes. This is the kind of person that God uses. The person that says, here here I am, God. Send me, use me, do with my life what you will. For Mary, she endured difficulty, ultimately, the worst difficulty you could possibly imagine. She raises her son, she would nurture him, love him, and he would eventually be subjected to death on a cross. But Mary is that example of one who God uses for his purposes. Through Mary comes Jesus, and because of her humility and her submission, these events through Luke's gospel happen. God uses Mary and her life to great purpose. And that leads us to a couple of simple applications as we close, as we enter into our busy weeks and our busy lives, uh, how we can put ourselves into a position to make ourselves useful, even in this really rushing around Christmas season. Again, first is easy, and that is to flip our script. To flip our script. Take what usually happens in our lives and things that we usually value and the goals that we usually strive for and turn them all on their heads. Taking this very pronounced contrast that Luke gives to us in these first chapters as an illustration of what God uses, instead of striving for greater position or striving for greater power or prestige or a better job or more skills, flipping our script means striving downwards, striving for a deeper humility in our lives, a deeper understanding of our own sinfulness and the the need for God's love every day. This is the heart of what brings us to Christ when we were first saved. Not our greatness, obviously, not our goodness, but our own sense of lack, our acute sense of not being worthy, where we know that we are at God's mercy. These are the same truths that make our lives able to be used by God for His work day by day. This is what living in God's strength really means, not our own means. It means waking up every morning with this understanding. I I can't accomplish God's will today apart from His power. I'm not able to withstand sin apart from God's grace. I'm not able to do anything significant without God being moment to moment involved in what I do today. And so we go to God and, and we affirm, I can't. We can't anything without God's empowerment and His forgiveness and His provision. And so we ask, God, will you walk with me today and guide me today and forgive me today and use me today and empower me to do your will today? That's when God uses us, when we embrace the fact that we are only bond slaves of the Lord in that kind of humility. We're going to stay a little thematic here. Uh, this is another fairly new Christmas tradition. Uh, trend. It's, it's, it's crazy that we have this, but this is a thing. This is, uh, the great Christmas light fight, I think it's on NBC or something like that, ABC, yeah. My Christmas lights, seven strings of lights with a plug and a little timer and a garland, and we leave it at that. But as humans, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we can't leave things like that. Whatever we do, we have to supersize the things that we do. So the networks came along, they realized, hey, 
people are taking the, the, the Christmas lights things to the next level and the next level and like a bazillion levels above that. And so the TV people come in and of course they put a reality TV spin to it and they say, hey, we're going to have people fight over this and every year it's going to be a tradition that you do the best that you can and whoever has the better thing is going to get some, some, some sort of prize. So it takes decorating your home with lights and makes it a, this knock-down, drag-out competition of who has more lights and more animatronics and who takes up more of the city's power grid. Whoever's madcap display is judged as best and biggest gets this prize. And we love it. We get caught up in escapades like this. Our whole lives get caught up in rat races like this. And we forget, this is not what God uses. The bigger and the better and the greater and the more capable and the more prestigious or the more anything. More likely, well, this is probably more likely here. (laughs) The kind of Christmas display that he might use. Like the example of Mary, God is likely to use us when we not only realize our smallness, but we strive for humility in our lives. So, flip our script. Become more like Jesus, who did not regard his station as God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Flipping our script. Having different values, working our way to a deeper humility, makes us useful. Finally, to be used God, we need, to, we need to prioritize His plan. Prioritize His plan. When we put what God wants first, ahead of our own desires, ahead of the cost to our own selves, our own status, our own security, Mary said her marriage and the outcome of her marriage, God could use that. Her future family life, it was God's to do with as He willed. Her status in her culture and in her community, For the rest of her life, she placed it as a resource for God to use. She yielded so that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done instead of her own. So God used her. That was the first step in how we came to know God's forgiveness in our own lives. Telling God, hey, God, take my life. Take these sins. I cannot handle this on my own. And I yield to you as my Lord and my Savior. And that's the continuing step that we need to grow in so that we can be used more and more by God on a daily basis. And we'll just end with this example. This young man, his name, as you probably know, John Allen Chow. He was in the news mostly as an object of ridicule over the course of the last couple of weeks. Uh, Chow went to an island designated as off-limits by the Indian government to a people group who had no contact with the outside world almost ever. Didn't know their language because nobody knew their language. Didn't know how to break through to them, but did know that every other contact that had been made with this tribe had proven deadly. Chow went to this tribe, he made contact, was eventually killed. This happened just probably about 15, 16 days ago. And since then, the internet has thrown article about, after article back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, depicting him as a foolish adventurer, as some kind of cultural conqueror, uninformed, insensitive, unprepared, and most of all, uh, that this whole mission of his was rather a useless waste of a life. And that's what we would think 
if we just read the headlines. But reading more deeply, Chow had been preparing for this, this trip to the Sentinelese. This is called the Sentinel Island. He had this people group on his heart for the last eight years. He'd been praying for them. He'd been studying cross-cultural ministry. He did whatever he could not to be a carrier of disease, had every inoculation under the sun. He readied himself for whatever outcome might come his way, even and maybe especially death. This is what shocks people, that this missionary knowingly went to share the love of Christ with the possibility of death being a real outcome, almost an inevitability. Useless? This was his last message written to his parents after he had made contact with this, this tribe over the course of three days that he was there with them. He says, you guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it, worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please don't be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to, and I will see you again when you pass through the veil. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshiping in their own language, as Revelation 7, 9, and 10 states. The Sentinelese, they may never receive Christ. They may, they may never. But what is true is that John Chow and his writings have circled the globe and confronted believers and non-believers worldwide with the fact that a person's experience of God's love through Jesus Christ is so real and so inspirational that sacrificing one's life to spread that love is a logical con conclusion and not useless at all. When we prioritize God's plan in our lives, when we give it first priority, because we know Jesus and we know his salvation, God uses us. And we need to stop in all of our activity, whether it's at Christmas or any time of the year, and ask ourselves, to what effect? Why? Why are we running around so desperately doing so much with our lives? If we're advancing ourselves and building our own empires and resumes and transcripts, Christmas and this visitation of Gabriel to Mary reminds us to put ourselves back in the place of weakness and back in the place of humility. To say to God, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. To yield to God, to yield to his plan, to yield to his will, to make ourselves useful for his kingdom.